Welcome to the James Quantall Show, the space where I interview the world's experts and share how you can live your life to the fullest, be present and connect deeply with others, and build the life of your dreams. On today's episode, I had a chat with Andrew Salisbury, the founder and CEO of my favorite coffee company, Purity Coffee. During this episode, we discussed the major differences between clean coffee and the already ground coffee on the grocery store shelf, the discovery that led Andrew to build Purity Coffee, and finally, we discussed a new Purity Coffee farm in Colombia and their plans to experiment on a soil level and cultivar level to take their products to another level. Not only is this my favorite tasting coffee, but they're also the cleanest. Their coffee is organic contains zero contaminants, such as heavy metals, molds, and mycotoxins, and is roasted to have two times the antioxidants of other coffee brands. I also love that they ship coffee as soon as it's roasted. When I received my monthly bag of Purity Medium Roast Coffee, it was roasted less than 48 hours earlier. As a special treat for the listeners of this show, Purity Coffee is offering 20% off your first coffee order at puritycoffee.com with the special coupon code JAMESQ. That's one word, JAMES, and the letter Q. Please have a listen and discover if the coffee you're drinking is the best option. This episode might sound like it was sponsored by Purity, but this is all natural because they're my favorite coffee company and I begged them to have this conversation with me. If you'd like to ask any questions for future guests or just say hello, send me a note on Instagram or Twitter at James Quantall. And as always, please sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So the story I wanted to share with you and I left you on pins and needles was I actually never drank coffee before in my life before I had Purity Coffee for the first time in 2018. Wow. It was the first coffee I have ever had. And since then, maybe have tried one or two other kinds and been sorely disappointed at the standards that I set for myself. Yeah. You set a high bar right from the beginning. I had an issue with caffeine. Like I never drank pop as a kid. If I had a sip of soda, it kept me up all night. And so I just thought coffee would do the same thing for me. And when I started writing and podcasting, I noticed I needed a little boost to focus and to really tap into the creative side. And Purity Coffee really helped me with, with that. And now it's become a ritual. I have a cup of coffee almost every single day. My wife and I, we were just on a vacation. We brought Purity with us and we're grinding it in our Airbnb with a a manual hand grinder. We travel with the pocket Purities. We've made pocket Purities in rest areas in on the interstates in the United States with just boiling water from the tap there. I mean, we've we've become quite advocates. So I just wanted to thank you for speaking with me because I love your product. No, fantastic. That's great. You, you set yourself a high bar, a starting point with purity, because I mean, that's sort of what we we advise people to do is, you know, drink their regular coffee, but then drink us for like three days and then go back to the regular coffee because that contrast is the thing that, that really shows you how you're feeling in your body. But if I don't know anybody who started with purity, I can imagine it's a bit of a disappointment. Maybe my daughter. My daughter has only drunk purity and she's now 15 and she's an average fan. <laughs> I just don't understand you know i've had starbucks now and i don't want this to be a conversation about starbucks because this is there's really no comparison between purity coffee and starbucks it's different markets it's different people it's different everything but just the flavor and everything is just not there for me and i know that it's not tested and held to the same quality standards so i'm like it's a lose-lose for me to drink anything else it's a different business model i mean you know Starbucks has done a very good job in the, in the sense of creating a third wave of coffee where people are starting to recognize that coffee could be very high quality. But their problem is they're trying to deliver the same product like a McDonald's around the world. So wherever you try it, whether it's in Seattle or Singapore, your coffee tastes the same. So one of the problems with that is the only way to make an organic product taste the same that's coming from farms from all over the world is to over-roast it so you're tasting this burnt sort of astringent coffee, and that's why Starbucks tastes the way that it does. Why well, a lot of major chains, the, the coffee tastes the way it does, because the lens they're looking at is how do we get a uniform, homogenous product across the world? They're not looking at, at what can we do to provide the most health benefits from this coffee. Why do you think people want the same taste and profile every time they drink their coffee? Yeah, I think it's just the certain people. It's like the 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 sort of Steve Jobs always wearing a black shirt. There's a certain sort of level of consistency of one less thing that you have to worry about. It's a shame 
because it's such an amazing product. I mean, you know, if you try if you try coffees from all over the world, I mean, different flavors and tasting notes, but also different health benefits based on the coffee. But they're sort of the low bar, they're the lowest common denominator, meaning that they they want to provide a consistent taste across you know geographies. So there's actually different health benefits based on the the actual coffee fruit that you're using. Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, all of the tests that there's been over nineteen thousand studies on coffee and health. All of the tests that have been done were were really sort of observational studies where where consumers were asked, "Do you drink coffee? Yes or no? If it's yes, how many pots of coffee or how many cups of coffee do you drink a day?" And you would fill that out and move on to the next question. So the problem is. They're not talking about what is the type of coffee, the quality of coffee, how are you brewing it, and all of those things have a big impact. But then even on a sort of like a cultivar level, the the compounds that are inside of coffee vary from, from cultivar to cultivar, and then the way you roast coffee dramatically changes the profile. Of I can go into a lot of details about the roasting, but you know what happens is think of it almost like a curve. As you as you roast coffee, the antioxidants drop off in the coffee. So the darker it gets, the less antioxidants you get. But in the early stages of roasting, you'd think, okay, let's have a really light coffee. Well, a really light coffee has acrylamide in it, and a really dark coffee has a thing called PAHs in it, which are polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. So there's a sweet spot that you need to manage. So long answer to your question is yes, it does make a big, big difference if you if you don't pay attention to the health benefits, then it's just sort of a, it's a crapshoot. It's a luck game. So I know Purity started out with a medium roast, and that kind of seems like you'd get the best of both of those, the highest antioxidants for your value, but the lowest amount of impurities in, through that or the other substrates. Is that kind of why you started off with that? It is. We started off, so our, our commitment right at the beginning was every decision based on health. That was our North Star and that we weren't going to compromise. So the health benefits come from the chlorogenic acids in coffee. They don't come from caffeine, which is present in the coffee, but they come from the CGAs, the chlorogenic acids. The most chlorogenic acids that we could roast for was around a medium roast without having um, bad levels of acrylamide. So that was the reason we started. And then later on, we said, okay, we need to decaffeinate this. So we did Swiss water, and that's the same coffee, Swiss water decaffeinated. And then the third level is we actually realized from our scientists in Brazil that chlorogenic acids turn into chlorogenic lactones. So the darker you roast the coffee, although you lose antioxidants, you actually get a thing called chlorogenic lactones, which is very good for stomach health. So people who have, who've got stomach sensitivities, they're better off drinking the darker coffee. Which is interesting because I would think I've had dark roast from Purity and it tastes a little heavier to me, almost like you would think it was going to be more difficult for your stomach to process. No, it's actually easier in, in the sense of because of the, it's chlorogenic acids, as they say, at this, the acid part is, is for people who've got intolerances, that's also a little difficult for people. The higher the chlorogenic acids, the more likely that you're going to be intolerant of it. So the darker roses for those people that, are, that, so that have stomach issues. Okay. So backing up, I am curious. I think Purity started around 2017. Why? I mean, there's so many coffees. You go to Publix or Kroger or whatever your grocery store is, and you're overwhelmed at the sheer number of coffees that are there. Why did you think we needed another one? Yeah. It wasn't even a business for the first couple of years. I didn't really even think of, of turning this into a, to a business necessarily. But the main motivation or the catalyst for this is that my wife was having some health issues and we couldn't figure out what it was and we were doing the normal sort of barrage of tests and that sort of thing. But meanwhile, she was drinking a lot of coffee because like a lot of us, she needed an extra boost in the morning and so she was drinking caffeine. So we had lots of fights about, you know, I was a tea drinker. You said you weren't drinking coffee. You know, I was a tea drinker until maybe seven, eight years ago. And that's what I did. I drank green tea, black tea, and white tea every single day. That's right. So so she was very resistant, as you can imagine, giving up her coffee. And she said, okay, prove it to me. I'll do it if you can prove it, that it's bad for me. So I went on this journey of just sort of like trying to get information. And I was lucky to meet two professors at the Institute of Coffee Studies in Vanderbilt in, in Nashville. 
And they said to me, look, there's a huge disconnect between what the scientific community knows about the health benefits of coffee and what the general public knows. Coffee is very good for you. And they gave me this shopping list of all these health benefits. And I started working with one of the top professors in the world, just sort of as a consultant on coffee and health. And I said, well, what would happen if we made every decision based on health? And we spent about 18 months in research and development. And I honestly didn't know if there was going to be a business at the end of it, because I felt like people weren't buying coffee based on health. And we didn't even know if we can actually make a difference. And if we made every decision based on health, would we be able to make a difference? So that's sort of how it took me 18 months of research and development. Then we tested against 49 of the top brands of coffee in the US. And we were anywhere from two to 10 times higher in antioxidants than any other coffee. So that was the moment I said, ah, there's people who are health conscious who happen to be coffee drinkers. Not people who are just like, oh, they've gone more, gone ones of coffee and they're just focused on having a lot of variety of coffee. Their main focus is health. And we felt like there was a good market for that. And so, you know, at the end of 2016, beginning of 2017, we saw our, our first capital bags and it went from there. And how quickly after that did you realize that, like, at what point was it, okay, we actually do have something here. People want this. I think it's it. It felt like a slower curve than it actually was. If you look at the graph, it felt like a slower curve because it's exponential growth. It's, you know, it's the whole idea of one to two and two to four and four to eight and eight to 16. It's only until you get 16 to 32 that you suddenly go, wow, we're really taking off. I think the, the, the point for me was when we reached about 10,000 five-star testimonials. When our customers, the feedback from our customers was so strong. Now we're at about 18,000, we're adding a thousand a month or so. That probably is the biggest indicator I've got that, you know, our products are incredibly well received. I mean, I don't think there's a coffee company in the U.S. Who's with as many testimonials. Wow. And that's really something because as far as affordability goes, I think Purity Coffee is quite affordable. But it's definitely not the least expensive bag of coffee you can buy. No, I mean it's it's like most quality products. If you think about it, when you you know if you, if you think you need to buy a car, Ferrari is not going to be the cheapest car you can buy. I mean, it, there's going to be there's the Louis Vuittons, the Chanel's of this world. The level that we have to go to that other coffee companies don't is dramatically different. Most of their job is to take you know, green coffee, turn it brown and, and, and that's it. It's really, there's nothing deeper than that apart from creating the best flavor profiles. We have to lab test coffee from all over the world for the highest in antioxidants. The farm needs to be organic, regeneratively farmed, hand grow, oh sorry, hand picked, hand selected, um, shade grown coffee. And then we have to roast it to keep the, the antioxidants in the coffee, which is another step. Plus we lab test all of our coffee for heavy metals, mycotoxins, mold, um, that sort of thing. So it's a, there's a lot of extra steps in, in making a coffee based on health. How often do you do testing on the finished product or the, the raw bean? So, so if we're going to get a harvest, we'll test the harvest, but we'll, we'll spot test containers of coffee that we'll bring in. It all depends on if, if anything changes. Typically, we won't spot test anything if it's staying the same, meaning we bought a harvest and we're getting an additional container that that's all going to be um, passed through. But but we'll, we'll spot check for anything that could be contamination as broad on a local level, like, you know, yeast or those sort of things. And as you grow and continue to catch on with people, because if anyone's like me, they, they start with a bag and then before long they're on a subscription and then they're on two subscriptions and then they're telling their friends and family, which is exactly what happened with me. How will you be able to find enough of the raw material as you continue to grow? So one of our challenges and the reason why you see the occasional stock outs of the coffee is we have to predict how much coffee we're likely to sell in, a, in any given year because there's two harvests we buy from and there's multiple farms, but, but three main farms. Typically what we do, which is different than any other coffee company, is we find a coffee that fits our criteria and we buy up all of their harvest. So the problem is, if that coffee runs out, their coffee runs out. So, I mean, there's not another, it's not like we're just selling, and now we're selling Ethiopian, and this one's a Guatemalan, and we've got this wide range of coffee for you to choose from. It's the king of the castle. It's the single coffee that meets our criteria at the highest level 
that's the coffee that we buy. And so supply is always an issue, and it's one of the reasons why we encourage subscription, because that gives us some sort of headlights of visibility in how much coffee we're going to need to uh, procure over the year. But, you know, I mean, I was going to save this for, a, for, for, for later on, but one of the things we're doing is we're, we've just bought our own farm in Colombia. So that's actually a big move. I really, that's something I want to know more about, whatever you're willing to share. Why did you buy a farm? Our focus has always been every decision based on health. And so one of the problems, and you identified it well, is, well, what happens with supply? We've got this very high criteria that we're looking for coffee. What if the coffee runs out? And so the coffee is scarce, one, because it reaches a very high standard. Two, is our standards are improving all the time. So what we initially said was a great coffee for purity, now doesn't make the uh, make cap. So we're improving our standards, which means that the, the, the places we could buy it from become less and less. So buying the farm in Colombia, what we've done is we wanted to start experimenting on a soil level to find out how we can improve the nutrients in the coffee, and also, we want to experiment on a cultivar level about the sort of cultivars and coffee that give them the sort of nutrients that we want so we control the first mile. And, and there's two reasons for that. One is so that we can have our own supply of coffee, that we can predict 100% that we have enough coffee. And the second reason for doing it is to create standards which we can then sort of expand on with our producers. So in other words, we'll encourage them to adopt those standards and in return, we buy their harvests. That is so cool. And I envision just from what you just said, some type of a apprenticeship program where someone can come and work on your farm and learn the proper way to do this, the purity way, so to say, and then go back and do that on their farm. And then you have, they have a new customer. That's exactly it. And we're actually starting looking at, you know, building properties on the farm right now so that we can house visiting professors or people who are experts in, in, in coffee and health and also in, in regenerative organic agriculture and so that they can actually spend some time on the, on the farm and guide us and how we can improve. That makes a lot of sense. And I would imagine that the producers would be lining up because you're probably paying more for your raw material than other folks are that don't care about the quality as much. Absolutely. So there's a lot of talk about fair trade and, 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 and spot prices in New York for coffee and does the farmer, you know, get a fair a fair deal out of this. We pay top, top dollar. We're probably one of the best one of the best customers for, for coffee growers in Latin America if they meet our criteria because we don't negotiate with the farmer. It's effectively they're telling us the price they want to sell their coffee for, and we're saying yes or no. It's not a negotiation. It's not. They're not limited by spot pricing, so we pay well above whatever fair trade would normally stipulate. That's great. We actually had a coffee company on the podcast before, and it's Cafe Creole, and I met them at Expo East, and he explained fair trade is not fair trade necessarily and that there's so much more in that than basically fair trade's like the minimum and it sounds like you are way beyond what is the minimum with these folks because you need their product you you would probably buy more if there was more available i absolutely would absolutely and so that is one of the problems as we talked about with supply is just how do you find farmers that that reach this very high criteria for coffee now, is it just luck on some of these farms that you found that they were able to produce this product, like the right amount of rain and sun and then the the right bean? Or is are they being deliberate about growing? So this is actually a very good question because it goes right to the root of why we bought the farm in the first place. So the way Purity started is we started by saying, what we care about is that the coffee needs to be clean, it needs to be mycotoxin-free, it needs to be free from heavy metals, but it needs to be, more than anything, very high in CGAs. So coffee varies in CGAs from, from harvest to harvest, crop to crop, region to region, altitude to altitude. And so we said, okay, the only way to find out who's highest in CGAs is to lab test coffee from around the world. But after a couple of years of doing that and then picking that coffee and buying all of that harvest on that coffee, we started to recognize that there were certain behaviors that happened on the farm that would result in high CGA coffee. So we started to recognize the fact that all the coffee that we were buying was coming from regenerative organic agriculture, that the coffee was shade grown. We'd look for things like being bird friendly. So 
bird friendly means Smithsonian bird friendly means that migratory birds would land on the coffee and build their nests and then move on. While we while we weren't that focused uh, on the birds themselves, we were focused on the fact that that was an indication that the coffee was grown in its natural environment. So, cut a long story short, the more the coffee is grown in its natural environment, so if it's not rows and rows of coffee trees like in industrial farming, which makes it much cheaper, but the more it's grown in shade-grown natural environment, deep root systems, cover crops, you know, very sort of rich organic soil, then that coffee was higher in the nutrients that we wanted. And so that was the thing that led us to saying, okay, we're going to buy, not only are we buying from farms that follow these practices, we're going to start to, to develop and improve the practices ourselves. So these farms sound a lot like the types of farms that we'd want to get our fruits or our vegetables or our meat from as well, to where we basically interact with it as little as possible and let it just do what it's supposed to do naturally instead of trying to industrialize the whole process. That's exactly it. I mean, you know, it all plays into the conversation about the difference between dirt and soil. So the problem we've got is, you know, that so much of our planet is now converting soil into dirt. And the reason we're doing it is these inputs like fertilizers and pesticides, which are not only bad for the food in, in the end product, but are also bad in terms of converting soil to dirt. So all of the microbes, the easiest way to describe this is industrial farming tries to feed the plants, regenerative agriculture feeds the soil, and that creates the nutrients to feed the plants. And that's what we're focused on. The pushback that you hear a lot, and I'm pretty well connected with just the health and wellness industry. I actually sell grass-fed, grass-finished beef for a friend of mine at a local farmer's market. But the excuse you hear is, oh, that's great and all, but you can't feed the masses with that technology. Like You've got to industrialize it if you want to be able to feed everyone. And I always push back and say, well, that's not true. We just need more small farmers doing it the right way. Instead of 1% of the country being farmers, we need more like 40% or some number like that. And looking back pre-1900s, the statistics were like 80 to 90% of Americans were involved in agriculture. And now we're talking two, 3% are involved in agriculture. So we we messed it up. Yeah, and, and I understand that argument. I mean, I, I've heard the same argument with GMO foods. So, you know, GMO allows us to produce more food, less insect damage, and therefore, you know, it's going to feed the people who would be starving. But the problem is, you know, at what expense? So luckily, I don't have to make those sort of global answers or, or, or considerations for, you know, how do we feed the masses or do we go GMO? I just have to worry about my family and I have to worry about the people that are close to me. And what I want to do is produce the very best quality coffee for health that I could produce. And I know that it may not be accessible to everybody, just like buying a Ferrari isn't accessible to everybody. But what I'm trying to do is legitimately create standards that other coffee companies or other farmers can adopt that'll improve the quality of their coffee. Not everyone will adopt it. I mean, margins are always, you know, important. You've got to, but I think the trend is we're not really helping the farmers. We're not. Uh, we're not helping the soil. And over the years, I think the outputs from these farms that are industrial farms um, are not really as uh, they're not living up to the promise. And I don't want to diss on the big agriculture too much, but I do find it pretty telling when was was sitting with someone not too long ago, and they they farm a few thousand acres monocrop. And they said, yeah, we're trying to get healthier. We're actually trying to figure out how to do a garden in our backyard. And we're, we're learning how to grow. Like you grow on thousands of acres. You better than anyone should know how to grow, you know, for your family. And they really didn't know how because it's a lot. It's different. It's not the same skill set. It's, it's much different. I am curious if you've noticed any behaviors in those farmers themselves. Like why do they grow it this way? Because... Up until you came along, could they have really gotten any more money for having all this better quality product? That's the big problem. No. The answer is I sort of see it as a virtual circle in terms of if people start to recognize coffee is good for them, then they'll ask the next question. It's, okay, coffee's great for me. What makes it great for me? Then they'll start to recognize there's a shopping list of things that you need to have present in your coffee in the way that it's grown and the way that it's roasted that will make it better for you. 
And because of that, they'll pay more for their coffee. So the farmers will get more money and they'll be encouraged to do better practices. Up to this point, the only thing the farmer is concerned about is volume. If it's, uh, if it's based on New York spots, it's a commodity product, or if it's very high-end specialty coffee, it's taste. If that's the only lens you're looking through, if it's volume or if it's taste, you're not going to make the decisions that a lot of our farmers make to improve the quality of the soil so it's more nutrient-dense for the coffee because no one pays extra for that apart from us. How did you find these farms then? Like, Because they weren't... Were they even aware that they had a more nutritious product? Did they know? No, absolutely not. I mean, we lab tested. So we had a great importer called Allied Coffee. They do our, all of our imports for us. So they've got a team of people who really travel the world, but travel uh, around Latin America. They know exactly what sort of farms uh, Purity is looking for. And what we do is we sample and we lab test. You know, right now we understand what the criteria is, regenerative organic agriculture, all the things that we're looking for. But then we lab test for highest in antioxidants. And then often we'll tell the farmer and we'll say, your coffee fits the bill and we want you to do more of what you're doing and increase your your yield. And, you know, they're surprised. Um, and they're surprised that they'll, that, that one coffee company will buy, basically buy all of their products. And can they maintain that level of quality for harvest after harvest, or do you have to eventually find new people? Well, I mean, it hasn't happened yet. So far, they've all maintained their quality, but there are quality controls that we have. Basically, if it's a new harvest, we're testing the coffee for the criteria that we've set, and they've got to reach those standards again. That is extremely promising to me because that proves that the inputs matter on what output you get from the coffee. So that to me shows that you can create a blueprint that farmers can use to create the best health quality product they can. And, and I think why it's important is we all sort of understand, or maybe a lot of people understand, oh, if you go to a farmer's market and you have this tomato and it's, you know, it's organically grown, it tastes so much better, isn't it fantastic? But because we're measuring the health benefits or the, the compounds inside the coffee, we've got a great poster child for what regenerative agriculture can do on a product. In other words, you're not going to do that with a tomato. You're going to say, ah, it was great. It tastes fantastic and you'll move on. But if that, that food product actually had health benefits attached to it and you were measuring the compounds of those, the amount of those compounds in that tomato, then you would care a lot more about the soil quality. So I think what's interesting is we're doing it with coffee and it's going to be great sort of uh, validation of soil quality and how it affects the coffee. And I've worked on an organic farm and the practices that you're describing that create a quality coffee created the best tasting tomatoes and potatoes and spinach that I've ever had. And I have been that person that wanted to walk around the farmer's market and cut into the potatoes and test the contents of them to prove my what I already know, my, my body can feel and taste the difference between this farm and that farm. But a customer that doesn't know that's just walking through the market sees a tomato and it's a tomato to them. It's a commodity. And that's always a struggle with the small organic farmer is how they differentiate their product that usually costs more money yeah. versus the, the bigger farm that stands right next to them. Now, you try their spinach once and you're convinced. So I agree. It's a sort of happy coincidence that food that's very good for you actually tastes like the best food. So in other words, the tomato that's organically grown is the best tomato you've ever had. Same thing with coffee. I mean, one of the reasons why there's so many people who are just big fans of our coffee is not only is it good for them, but it also tastes great. It, to me, as it cools, it reminds me, and this is the medium roast, and I'm drinking some right now as we're talking. It tastes more like a hot chocolate to me than what I would imagine a coffee was. Because I did say I had never had coffee before Purity, but I did have one sip once when I was young and I never wanted to drink it again. It was awful. It was bitter. It was strong. It was just not good. But when you drink a, a, a coffee that's brewed correctly with the right bean, it's just, it's enjoyable. And I think that's what uh, a lot of people are missing when it's just like, caffeination like if caffeination is just a goal you can go on amazon and order caffeine pills and you can skip all the work of brewing the coffee <laughs> yeah and it's not where the health benefits come from i mean you know caffeine is is sort of is it is an instrument in the orchestra but it's just one instrument i mean you know really there's a lot of things at play that you have to pay attention to if you care about health 
things like polygenic acids, tragonoline, cafestol, carriol. There's just a list of things that you want in your coffee. And because most Cupman, most no coffee company I know of measures those sort of compounds inside of coffee, then it's just a bit of a crapshoot about what you get. How does a consumer take this knowledge that you're giving and survey the coffee they like? Is it possible for them to take the coffee they're drinking? Maybe it's a Dunkin' Donuts K-Cup or some something popular like that. How do they then say, hey, how does this compare to like a purity coffee? It's very difficult if the company isn't willing to do the test necessary. So, you know, part of the problem is there's a there's a big motivation in the industry not to do these tests. Like, why would you want to test for mycotoxins and mold, heavy metals? Is it just a, as a gating system for people buying your coffee? Not everyone is asking for it. If they're not asking for it, in fact, the consumer isn't asking for it. You just don't want to do it. And so that's really what's happening is is there's a resistance in the industry. You know, there's a lot of pushback about the idea is the mycotoxins, ochratoxin A, are the problems with coffee if it's poorly handled. The quickest solve for that, tell the coffee company, spend $50 and make sure it's tested to be free of mycotoxins. Instead of all this argument of there is or there isn't mycotoxin in coffee, just prove it to me. It's going to cost you $50 for a container of coffee. Then let's move on. But they don't want to do it because... You know, it would sort of exclude coffee that doesn't pass the test. That's interesting. And when you started out, I know this this journey began for your wife's health. What was the result of that experiment? It's one of these things that she's healthy now. It's that's the great great thing about it. But but and, and I won't put it down to coffee. Up, it, it was so many things we did from changing her supplements to even having the house remediated for mold, and there was just lots of things that we did. But she's she's doing really well now. I mean, it's I think it more than anything it just made us recognize that the food that we were eating was incredibly important. That we needed to pay even more attention to the quality of the food because on that journey. As she started eating better and better food for her health, I think that was the, the probably the biggest reason for change. That was the same transition my wife and I went through is you start with just improving one thing that you eat and then you feel a little better. So you're like, well, what else can I do? And before long, your pantry is completely different a few years later than it was. And the foods I eat now that me 10 years ago wouldn't even recognize my pantry and then my yeah. diet now. It just becomes an addiction. That's exactly it. The opposite is also true in the sense that if, you, if you're conscious and you pay attention to your body, you recognize what food is good for you, but you also start to recognize what food is bad for you. So, you know, that, that sort of heaviness of just eating something that's bad for you, if you pay attention, that's also a great litmus test to do. So you've got the farm and you're going to start doing experiments there and tests there and how much, not, not specific numbers, but will, will this farm be able to grow enough product to serve at least some of the customers that you have now? Probably maybe 20 to 30% is the goal. It's going to take us a, a year or so until we reach the criteria that, that we would buy from our own farm. So in other words, you know, we're basically changing it from an organic farm to regeneratively organic um, agriculture and certain things, there's tree planting, there's cover crops, there's lots of things that we're doing, make the coffee meet our criteria. But the intent was never really to have our own supply of coffee. The main intent behind it is what can we do on this lab farm to learn about coffee and help so we can start planting cultivars. Like I'll give you an example. There's a cultivar of coffee called Lorinia. Lorinia is a naturally almost decaffeinated coffee, meaning it is caffeine-free. It's natural. So out of the ground, it's a natural coffee that has maybe 5% of the total caffeine that you would normally get in coffee. So we're going to measure that against our decaf and say, is this one better than this? And if it is better, if, if naturally coffee that is caffeine-free is better, then we've got the ability to increase supply. Wouldn't that be something amazing to be able to just skip the whole Swiss water or I think there's another one that's mountain, mountain purity, something that removes the caffeine from the bean and you just find one that can do it on its own. And you think of every other coffee company in the world, they don't want to do that because they only care about taste. And so why would you pay a premium for a coffee that is uh, naturally decaffeinated if you could just say, I'm going to set it off for decaffeination and I'll save money. And that's one of the reasons why this cultivar 
isn't widely used, and this one of the reasons why we'll be able to start building it up on our farm. That does make me wonder, why does purity taste so good if that's really wasn't the initial goal, was taste wasn't the goal? Has that become part of importance in the process at all? I wouldn't say it's an afterthought, but it is not our North Star. So we agreed right at the beginning to make every decision based on health without compromise. And what that meant is, if a bag of coffee turned out to be $200 a pound and it tastes like ditch water, that's what it would be. Because we wanted to at least start at the high point and say, every decision based on health that looks like this, and it's an amazing coffee or it's not a good coffee, how can we improve it? How can we improve the blend and still keep the health benefits? We were just very, very lucky that, you know, when we talk about organic produce, we were just very lucky that the best coffee for health had to be a great taste of coffee as well that is in the top 1% of all coffees. How amazing is that? That's pretty lucky that it, it worked like that, I would say. Yeah, it is. And this whole journey started just as experiments for you in a way. What were you doing before Purity? Yeah, very different. So I had a software company in Latin America. So we, we were selling large software systems. Basically, it couldn't have been more different. It was always a, a million dollar sale plus. It would take about 18 months to sell a customer. And I would know the top 100 customers in Latin America that, that I cared about. And so we were geographically spread over five countries. We had offices in five countries. Just couldn't have been more different. Uh, and then I sold the business in 2011 and took some time off and I was looking for something new to do. And I knew, knew it had to have some contribution side to it as well. But when I first fell across this sort of coffee part, I mean, it, it, it was, it took a long while for me to be convinced that I could turn this into a business because my skill set was not from that background. So it wasn't million dollar sales, 18 months to sell to selling a $20 bag of coffee was not a good was not a good business plan. I knew that I didn't have the experience. It's a real drinking from the fire hose sort of thing as we've been building this. And I happened to find a video on YouTube that was pretty fascinating of you jumping from 9,000 feet above the ground with a bungee cord attached. So it doesn't seem to me like you're that afraid of risk necessarily. So it doesn't surprise me that you ended up turning this into a, a fledging business. Yeah, it was it was fun. I mean, honestly, this was something that I just genuinely enjoyed. Every step of the, the, the journey has been just really fun as I've been learning about coffee and health and learning about, you know, the, the health benefits of coffee. There's been a lot of inflection points where I felt like we could really fall with this hurdle. Like we could fall with the hurdle of designing our coffee and then sending it out there. And people just don't buy coffee based on health. Then we could fit, we could fall with the hurdle that if they bought coffee based on health, do they just stop? They go, okay, I tasted that. That was great. I'm never going to buy it again. And, and if they buy it again, do they refer their friends or do you have to spend a lot of money in marketing? There's a lot of sort of like points where I feel like we could have fallen at, at that hurdle. And, you know, luckily we didn't. So I think this was, uh, we had a lot of wind at our backs with this business. I never noticed that you actually had sold out of coffee. So I would imagine that would have been something people didn't quite understand. Like, well, what do you mean you're out of coffee? Like, n I've never seen anyone else run out of coffee. How are you running out of coffee? Right, right. And we hear that from customers. It, it typically doesn't happen. It's never happened before with coffee in general. It's happened with things like pocket purity or K-cups. And the reason for that is because there's extra steps in the logistics of those. So we're taking the coffee, we're roasting it, we have to have it fulfilled. Then we're having inventory. And so there's like a two month delay on that. So it doesn't happen or has never happened with coffee in general, but it's, uh, yeah, it is a, it is an issue because typically you would see that as a representation of bad management, just bad supply chain, you know, and in our case, it's just, it's very, very difficult to predict because we also can't overbuy our coffee because then we'd have a staling problem with coffee. To me, it's a great opportunity for you to dig in on the story of how you're different. Well, yeah, well, we're out because of this. And it makes people understand that there's not an unlimited supply of this product out there. And that's what makes it special. When my friends that have farms have a freeze that comes a little later than planned and destroys the entire blueberry crop, yeah, they don't have blueberries that year. And that just sometimes happens, unfortunately. Yeah, and, but you're right. It's, it, it is a story we need to do a better job telling. That the people need to understand that 
you know, to find coffee that meets our criteria, there's some inherent problems in, in supply in that. And it's one of the reasons why we appreciate the subscribers because that gives us predictability. So what we say is, if you're a subscriber, you're always prioritized first. So you as a subscriber won't run out of coffee. We may go off sale on our site for one of our products, but subscribers will always get it because we anticipate them first. So if we're running out, subscribers, we make sure they have you know, four months, five months worth so that we don't run out. So I do have another question. I noticed that you basically ship the bags like a day or two after they were roasted. Is that intentional that it comes to me and it's that fresh? It's our turnaround time is a day and a half or averaging a day and a half. So, but yes, it's intentional. I mean, it, it's, we want to make sure that if you get your coffee, you're getting it in that sweet spot of opening the bag within like 15 to 20 days where it's at its maximum freshness. But we also nitrogen flush the bag. It means that there's inert gas in the bag. And so the coffee doesn't stale. So it only stales when you open the bag. But we, we wanted to just make sure that every decision based on health, fresh is better than, than stale. Of course, we want to improve the time that the coffee comes to you. That makes sense. I When I first started buying Purity, we would buy a bunch of bags at one time to try to, when there was a sale or something, and then we would freeze them or store them. And I go, you know what? I'm buying this amazing coffee. I need to be enjoying it shortly after I'm getting it, even though I knew with nitrogen filling the bags that the bags were good for what, like seven, eight months after I got it or longer. That's right. But there's nothing better than a fresh cup of coffee that's been brewed, you know, a couple of days ago that, that or the, the being uh, roasted a couple of days ago. I mean, it's fantastic. But the most coffees in the store I find are already ground even. So if you go to a grocery store and you buy a bag of coffee off the shelf and it's pre-ground, couldn't that have been roasted and ground months and months ago, potentially? Absolutely. And one of the problems and one of the, one of the first issues that we had is that 70% that of the coffee market, people buy coffee ground. So that's a huge market. Now, we don't sell coffee ground. And the reason you don't sell coffee ground is because we made a decision in the early days that every decision based on health, we weren't going to compromise. Well, the problem with grinding coffee is you could have a, your coffee could arrive, it could be ground. You open your bag, it's nitrogen flushed. Your first pot of coffee is perfectly fresh coffee. But the next day, what's happening is the surface area on that coffee, because it's now ground, means it oxidizes the coffee quicker. So the lipids on the coffee, the oils on the coffee turn rancid. And those oils like cafestol and caliol, which are the lipids on the, on the coffee, are good for health. And so rancidity causes stomach problems and also causes sort of like a, a rancidity of those those compounds we care about. So yeah, we don't sell ground coffee for that reason. And that, that is a compromise. I actually did not notice that you didn't have ground coffee. And it's part of my morning ritual. And for the longest time, it wasn't until like two months ago that we actually got a automatic like a machine grinder. Yeah. I was hand grinding coffee every morning because it just felt like I was earning this. Yeah. And I know how much work and time it takes to grow coffee. My thought was, if I didn't care about the ritual, I might as well just get an IV or just get a pill. But I wanted to enjoy the entire process. So I would, I would you know, heat up my water to exactly 195 to 205 degrees. And I would heat up the French press to with, with warm water. And I would grind my coffee by hand. And right when the coffee was at that temperature, I would finish and dump that in and pour it over slowly for like a minute. And like, it was a ritual. It was an art. And yep. I loved it. But I eventually realized that hand grinding, I couldn't find a very good hand grinder. And I was replacing them. I think I bought like four of them since I started drinking coffee. <laughs> so I actually sent a message to Purity on Instagram, which I always get all my questions answered there. And they're like, oh, you know, our coffee guy says, you know, these couple different coffee grinders would be a good ones. So I bought one and it's it does take it up a notch. The, it's much more even, uh, it's quick. I didn't really care about the speed, but it, it did make the flavor more consistent for me, having a more unified uh, 
Yeah, people don't understand that the grind size makes a huge difference in the coffee. So we could do everything, you know, in the first mile where we're, we're buying coffee that fits our criteria. We can roast it to maximize the antioxidants. But if you put it in a blade grinder that chops out the coffee, which a lot of people do, you have uneven particle sizes. And that means that the coffee compounds don't extract to the same level. So if you can't get a burr grinder, like a, a, a good quality coffee grinder, all the coffee drops through those those conical grinds, and it means that they're an even shape, which means you get a perfect extraction in the coffee. So not only does it taste a lot better, but it also is better for you. That's what I discovered. And I was using, I think, this Java Press from Amazon, and it was great. It, it worked fantastic. And I definitely am going to keep on hand because when we travel, we still want to take it with us and bring our purity. And But... I definitely appreciate the uniformity of the the, the professional style grinder now. <laughs> yeah, it's worth it. What does your coffee ritual look like as the founder and CEO of a health coffee company? It's not. It's I, I've got a couple of different ways of preparing coffee. So I've got an espresso machine, but I also just do a regular pour over. That's sort of like my more normal sort of standard. So I use. I've got a coffee. I don't even know what the coffee maker's called now. I give you the name, but it's but it just basically does a pot of coffee, and and I'll I'll take the first, I'll grind the coffee beans, um, then I'll do a pour over. We're using a sort of like a Hario kettle, so I'll make sure all the beans are soaked, and then I'll put it in the the coffee maker and let that finish off for the last 10, 10 cups of, of coffee. But I always have a cup of coffee, you know, a pot of coffee on the go, and it's at least until maybe one or two o'clock. And have you found that the coffee, the caffeine or any of that is, is different from purity coffee? Does it make you feel different when you're drinking it like later in the day? I don't know about the caffeine, but the coffee definitely feels different. So from time to time, I experiment with other coffees. So some other coffee is coming out and either making making move in the direction of being mold-free and organic, and I'll test their coffee just to understand what it's like. And what I've noticed is, and I don't think it's the caffeine, I, I, I notice jitters, nervousness, you know, I just sort of like that, that cold sweat. If I drink too much, because I always like to, to test the boundaries. So the very best way to find out if a coffee is good for me or not is if I'm comfortable with three cups, drink four cups or five cups and see how I feel. And, and those are the things that I look for. I, I look for the, the nervous tension, the irritability, you know, the cold sweats, the, the stuff like upset and i find that a lot unfortunately so my wife and i were just in norway and we heard about a coffee spot in oslo and the the owner's name is tin wendelbo and apparently like we went in there and he had all these cupping awards year after year after year and we were told it was the they were the best baristas in the world and they had more awards for 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 those at the national or the international barista so we had to go try it and it was such an experience and they had coffees from all over and it was really interesting but i had more coffee in that one hour than i've ever had in my life and it felt like i drank five glasses of wine like the side effects from that much coffee were maybe worse than alcohol side effects. I had never experienced that before because I generally have one or two cups a day and that's it. And I did not like how that made me feel. The coffee was great though. And, and you know, because taste is the only lens they're looking at, the, the, the coffee's through, you could be tasting a fantastic, I know, Ethiopian coffee, Guatemalan coffee, a giga chef, great coffee, but it's not being tested to be absence of the bad stuff. And it's not tested to be, you know, high in, in chlorogenic acids. It'll taste great, but the way it makes you feel, that's really the, the thing that defines whether the coffee is good for you or not. The taste, the experience, the presentation, the stories, all that was a home run. But the way my body felt, it was one of the worst experiences from that lens. It made me feel awful. I, I just thought, oh, I just overdosed on caffeine. But you're right, it was probably a lot more than that that I'm not used to in the coffee because I've only ever drank my purity coffees. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, standards will increase over time. I mean, you know, it, and, and when they increase because the consumer demands them, 
then the importer will demand that from the farmer or the roaster will demand that for the farmer and be willing to pay a little bit extra for coffee that meets that criteria. So that's, that's sort of all of our job is to improve the standards, improve the demand when we, we ask for a cup of coffee. So I did talk with your partnerships team before this episode and secured a special discount for anyone that's listening to this that wants to try Purity Coffee for the first time. They go to Purity Coffee's website, which I'll put in the links, and they type in the discount code JAMESQ, and they'll get a discount on your first order of coffee. And you know, this is not a sponsored podcast. This is 100% driven by me begging to have this conversation because I just love the coffee so much and wanted to learn more. If you buy this coffee and you brew it correctly, which they'll more, they're more than happy on their website to educate you on the different ways to brew coffee, which is where I learned everything that I learned about brewing coffee. You'll be super excited and you'll probably be a subscriber just like me. But I am curious before we end this call, what else do you have on the horizon or what are you really excited about in this space that you can share? I think the farm is probably the thing I'm most excited about. The way I would sort of talk about this internally is that that this is a new category. The idea of coffee and health is a new category. When I, when I first started, say, six years ago, there was a mixed bag of some people saying, oh, I'm going to give up coffee for the new year, and I want to cut down my coffee intake. Coffee's bad for you. And there was a whole shopping list of things that people would say, oh, it dehydrates you or it's, you know, it's addictive. And now it's gone the other way. People are starting to recognize that coffee is really just this amazing health food. They're now starting to ask why, well, what makes it so healthy for you? And I think what we're doing now is the next level. I mean, of course we want the absence of bad stuff. I mean, of course you want a coffee that's free from mycotoxins, mold, uh, pesticides, heavy metals. I mean, that's just a natural, that should be a given based on just plain food standards. But what really matters is how do we improve the nutrient quality of the coffee? That's what we're interested in. There is no other coffee company that is focused on health that is investing in the farms to improve the quality of their coffee and to improve those standards across an industry. So that's super exciting for us. I would watch a documentary about your farm and the learnings that you have. And I definitely encourage you to take as much material from that farm as possible and, and educate other people because I just think that the world is understanding more about their bodies than ever before and they're, they're eager to hear these types of things that some of the myths that they've heard over the years maybe aren't true and there's a lot more nuance to it than just good or bad. It's still like every food that we, we consume. It's, it's, it's no longer possible to say, fish is good for you or bad for you? I mean, is it farm-raised or is it wild-caught sound? You know, is steak good for you or bad for you? Is it animal, you know, is it an industrial farming or is it grass-fed steak? You know, everything is depends. Everything now is you just have to dig a little bit deeper and say, well, it depends. Is this corn GMO or is this... So, so same thing is true of coffee. We're only starting to realize that that, that when you say coffee is good or bad for you, then you really need to sort of dig in a little bit deeper and say... How is it grown? How is it farmed? How is it roasted? And it's worth the effort. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show and educating us a little bit more about coffee. And uh, I'm going to continue to be a, uh, an advocate and a customer. Thanks for listening to this episode of The James Quandall Show. The show notes for this episode and other goodies can be found at quandall.com. Are you enjoying the show? If you are, please subscribe and leave a review. I may end up reading your review live on the next episode. Subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends about the show is the best way to support me and help the show grow. See you next time.